So every time, this time of year, uh, we start with Palm Sunday. And this day marks the triumphal entry uh, of Jesus into Jerusalem. And if you're like anything like I was as a kid, when I first heard we were going to Palm Sunday at church, I was like, finally, someone was, was going to tell me what the lines on my hand meant. You know, I was excited about it. Um, I, soon, I soon found out there were no fortune tellers at church to read my palm. Um, it was something totally different. And so it, um, I, I got it now. Um, but uh, what I want to do today is I really want to ask myself again, and I want to ask you, as we come into this week, um, are we truly going to enter into this story? Uh, or is this just another Sunday or just another, just another week in our lives? Because it's really easy to sit back. I think for Easter is like that for many of us. We all kind of go through the motions from time to time. We, we get dressed up, right? You and your family show up to this building or a building like it. Maybe you take some photos together as a family. But then you leave that place and you're back to your real life. And the story has very little impact on you anymore. And essentially we're just doing life. And that's what's shaping us, our life and our circumstances. And uh, we've done lots of Easter's that way. And it's easy just to kind of move right past it. But what I really, really like to do is I'd like us all to enter into this story one more time. If we saw ourselves as a part of the story. So I want to look at two scenes from the last week of Jesus's life. And we're going to go through them and we're going to ask questions of those scenes. And one of the things that, that Brian McLaren does in his book is at the end of each chapter, he asks the reader, what's one thought? What's one idea from today's story that intrigued you or provoked you? What is something that disturbed you, challenged you, encouraged you, warmed you, or warned you? What helped you or surprised you in the story? So my hope for each of us today is that we have a response to one of those questions. And so look with me uh, at Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 28. It'll be on the screen behind me. I'll be reading from the message version. Verse 28 says, After saying these things, Jesus headed straight to Jerusalem. When he got near Bethage and Bethany at the mountain called Olives, he sent off two of his disciples with instructions. Go to the village across from you. As soon as you enter, you'll find a colt tethered, one that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says, uh, asks you what's going on, what are you doing? Say, well, his master needs him. The two left and found it, just as he said. As they were untying the colt, its owner said, what are you doing untying the colt? They said, his master needs him. So they brought the colt to Jesus, then throwing their coats on its back, they helped Jesus get on. As he rode, the people gave him a grand welcome, throwing their coats on the street. Right at the crest, where Mount Olives begins its descent, the whole crowd of disciples burst into the enthusiastic praise over all the mighty works that have, they have witnessed. Blessed is he who comes, the king in God's name. All's well in heaven, glory in the highest place. Some Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, get your disciples under control. But he said, If they keep quiet, the stones would do it for them, shouting praise. When the city came into view, he wept over it. If you had only recognized this day and everything that was good for you, but now it's too late. In the days ahead, your enemies are going to bring up their heavy artillery and surround you, pressing in from every side. They'll smash you and your babies on the pavement. Not one stone will be left intact. 
All this because you didn't recognize and welcome God's personal visit. Going into the temple, he began to throw out everyone who had set up shop, selling everything and anything. He said, it is written in scripture, my house is a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a religious bazaar. Hosanna, often heard in these verses in different, in different texts, means save us now. So they're essentially saying that our salvation has come, that, that sort of thing. And Jesus paints the first scene and it's a messianic picture. It's the climatic, uh, climatic moment of all Jewish history coming together as this Messiah enters Jerusalem. He's fulfilling the prophecy that we read earlier in Zechariah chapter 9 that said, Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise the roof, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming. It was a scene that was normative for kings of the ancient times to come into that kind of procession, to come riding on a donkey or a colt. So it was a messianic prophecy that Jesus was fulfilling. He knows what he's doing. He's coming in from the east. So if you picture Jerusalem like Bryson City, Jesus is coming from the Silva area, and he's entering into the city. But there's another procession uh, happening at the same time coming from the west, let's say, Robbinsville area. It's in, in, there is the oppressive army of Rome, um, which enforces the theory that nothing good comes from Robbinsville. Um, just kidding. <laughs> hey. uh, but coming from the west was Pilate, right? The, Pilate is the governor of this area of Rome, and his procession looks very different. This is from author and theologian Marcus Borg, says this, Two processions entered Jerusalem on a spring day in the year 30. One was a peasant procession, the other an imperial procession. From the east, Jesus rode a donkey down the Mount of Olives. Cheered by his followers, Jesus was from the peasant village of Nazareth. His message was about the kingdom of God, and his followers came from the peasant class. On the opposite side of the city, from the west, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria, entered Jerusalem at the head of a column of imperial cavalry and soldiers. Jesus' procession proclaimed the kingdom of God. Pilate's proclaimed the power of the empire. The two processions embodied the central conflict of the week that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Pilate's military procession was a demonstration of both Roman imperial power and Roman imperial theology. It was the standard practice of the Roman governors of Judea to be in Jerusalem for the Jewish festivals, to be in the city in case there was trouble. Imagine the imperial procession arrival in the city, a visual panoply of imperial power, cavalry of horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold, sounds of the marching of the feet, the creaking of the leather, the clinking of the bridles, the beating of drums, the swirling of dust, the eyes of the silent onlookers, some curious, some awed, some resentful. Pilate's procession displayed not only imperial power, but also a Roman imperial theology. According to this theology, the emperor was not simply the ruler of Rome, but the son of God. For Rome's Jewish subjects, Pilate's procession embodied not only a rival social order, but also a rival theology. We return to the story of Jesus entering Jerusalem as the New Testament Gospels tell the story. It is a prearranged counter 
procession. The meaning of the demonstration is clear, for it uses some uh, symbolism from the prophet Zechariah in the Jewish Bible. According to Zechariah, a king would be coming to Jerusalem, humble and riding on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Jesus' procession deliberately countered what was happening on the other side of the city. Pilate's procession embodied the power, glory, and violence of the empire that ruled the world. Jesus' procession embodied an alternative vision, the kingdom of God. This contrast between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Caesar is central not only to the Gospels, but to the whole story of Jesus and early Christianity. The confrontation between these two kingdoms continues through the last week of Jesus' life. Holy Week is a story of this confrontation. This is the climatic scene that all of Jewish history has waited for. And the religious community freaks out over it, right? I think that the idea of what you do when the king shows up and his offer is something different than what you wanted, right? Because Jesus has this tendency to do that with us all the time. Have you ever asked God for like patience or humility, right? You know, it's like Daniel asking Mr. Miyagi to teach him karate and then you end up painting a fence and waxing floors, right? Like if you want patience, here, raise these four kids, right? It's... It, and you're like, I see what you did, Jesus. I see what you did there. That's funny. But, but we, we would rather have the, the matrix version of that, right? Where you just plug something into the back of my head and 30 seconds later, I know Kung Fu, right? Remember that? I just dated myself with some movies there. Um, Karate Kid comes back out in a couple months. Anybody see the previous to that? Resurrection story for, uh, for uh, Johnny there. You guys got to watch that. Anyways, side. But we have these expectations that... That when we have this uh, military might of Rome that, that is just oppressing, that runs over us. And you have this King Herod and you have all these religious systems of the day. That this Messiah was going to come in and he was going to liberate us. He was going to use the powers of that day, the dominant powers of politics and religion and popular opinion. And he was going to blow the doors off of this thing. But instead he shows up on a donkey with a bunch of peasants right, worshiping him. And ultimately, he's not going to accomplish anything that we wanted him to or the way we wanted him to. For you and I today, we probably wouldn't gripe, you know, that wouldn't be our uh, issue with him. You know, we don't care what, what type of farm animal he rode in on. It could have been a donkey or a horse or a mule or whatever it was. It was good with us. But we still look at the way of Jesus today and, 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 and how he went about doing his thing. And it doesn't necessarily lead us to a, a place where we want to be. Like I had my dreams and my expectations if I could just tack God onto those things. We can call it good. If God would just sort of just give me whatever I want, how I want it, and, and when I want it, then, then, I'm, then I'm okay. And all of a sudden you encounter this real Jesus. And it messes with your head and it messes with your heart. And you become this crazy follower. And Jesus says, you know, all that pride and that power and that control that you desire. He's like, yeah, let go of that. All of your fleshly appetites, let go of those. Let's, let's walk this way instead. We say, Jesus, everyone else though is doing it. He's like, yeah, I know. But if you're going to follow me, we're going to go, we're going to do it this way. And you and I, like today, are left with a decision to who we will follow. And what do we do with that question? And that's what Jesus is asking as he enters into the city riding a donkey, leading this peace march. He asked the questions, what king, 
What empire, what power is going to shape your soul in your life? And when he breaks into your life, it's in this way that's transformative. It critiques our pride. It critiques our wants and desires. And he shows up with this kingdom that is upside down. This other way of life. This new path, this new trail, this new road, a third way that Brian McLaren would refer to it as. And you're like, what are you thinking, Jesus? This is not the American way. We have power of government. We have power of religion. Our rights, our privilege, the power of pop culture and popular opinion. And you're not going to want to resist any of those if you're really wanting to change anything. But instead, he picks this crazy third way. And one writer would put it, the way that we follow him is this way of risky love. Love and peace and weakness, humility, serving, giving. And we're like, I don't get it. All right, we're going to cut scene. Go to number two. Turn with me to Luke 23. That was the first scene. Here's the second one. A couple of pages later, we get this other scene. The moment where these, these processions come together. There's been a trial. Jesus had been arrested and his disciples have abandoned him. His trial before the religious community, which has said that he has blasphemed and he's done all this stuff. And then he went on trial and they, they put him before Herod and they said, Herod, you need to judge him. And Herod sends him to Pilate. And, and now he's standing face to face with the governor of the religion, uh, the region of Rome. Starting in verse 23, it says this. So the whole council got up uh, and took Jesus to Pilate. They brought accusations against him. We have observed this man leading our nation astray. He has forbade us to pay our taxes to Caesar. He claims to be the anointed one and the king himself. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, it's as you say. Pilate turns to the chief priest in the crowd and says, I find this man guilty of no crime. The people say he has been stirring up discontent among the people all over Judea. He started up in Galilee and now he's brought his brand of trouble all the way to Jerusalem. Pilate says, just, to, just wait a minute. Is this man is from Galilee? And so when Pilate learned that Jesus was indeed Galilean, which meant he was officially under Herod's jurisdiction, Pilate sends him to Herod, who was currently in Jerusalem. And Herod was fascinated to meet Jesus, for he had heard about him for a long time. He was hoping he might be treated to a miracle or two. Perform for me, Jesus. He interrogated Jesus for quite a while, but Jesus remained silent, refusing to answer Herod's questions. Meanwhile, the chief priests and religious scholars had plenty to say, angrily hurling accusations at Jesus. Verse 11, eventually Herod and his soldiers began to insult Jesus, mocking and degrading him. They put expensive clothing on him and sent him back to Pilate. This ended a long-standing rift between Herod and Pilate. They became friends from that day forward. Pilate assembled the chief priests and other Jewish authorities. You presented this man to me as a rabble rouser, but I examined him in your presence and found him not guilty of the charges that you have leveled against him. Herod also examined and released him to my custody. So he has done nothing. He hasn't done anything deserving the death penalty. I'll see it that he is properly whipped and then let him go. For it was a custom of Pilate to set one prisoner free during the holiday festivities. 
Verse 18, the crowd says, away with this man, free Barabbas instead. Barabbas had been imprisoned after being convicted of insurrection he had led in Jerusalem. He had also committed murder. And Pilate argued with him, wishing he could release Jesus. In verse 21, but they wouldn't be silenced. The crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You look at this crowd and how quickly they change their minds. You and I, we change our opinions over time. We change uh, from year to year. And so as you come to this Holy Week, the question is, is what is your opinion of Jesus now? What crowd are you in? Obviously, none of us would say that we want to be in a crowd that would yell, crucify him. But yet, we yell it differently. We yell it by taking a, a few steps back from following Jesus. Rob Bell calls it the dust of a rabbi that you would follow so close to your teacher that the dust that he would kick up would get all over you. But many of us, we don't want to get our nice church shoes dirty. We don't want to get mud on our designer jeans because truly following the way of Jesus, well, that might cause tension and lead to awkward conversations at Thanksgiving with the family. And so we remain silent. And that silence is deafening. So you think about where you were last year or the year before that. I want to know where you are today. Where are you entering in the story from? There is a simplicity to following Jesus that is not complicated, but extremely difficult. You've heard this quote by G.K. Chesterton that says, it's not that Christianity has been tested and proven wrong, it's been tested and proven hard. Therefore, it remains untested. There is the power of popular opinion that still exists today and still threatens Jesus. Because essentially, we want to see the way of Jesus less cross-like, right? Like we want to cross with cushions and, and Velcro straps so we could take it off easily. And so we fight with one foot planted safely in our religion, safely engaged, but safely enough so we don't get wrecked by following Jesus. The other foot's planted in a place where we can be accepted, popular, unconfrontational. And what happens when we are the type of people who will have one foot behind Jesus and one foot in the world? We end up being the people who that day shouted, crucify him. We are at risk because in all this politics, and all the religion, and all this popularity, we may gain a kingdom, but we may reject the eternal king. And so it's everything about this story that jumps the walls of history and enters into 2018. Bryson City, the Grove Church, your life, my life, and begins to do this, this crazy thing. And it critiques us and it convicts us and it, it comforts us, but it also confuses us at times. And confusion in this moment is okay because Jesus, following him isn't a simple equation. This is spiritual formation. And there are times of confusion and doubt for you and I. But he says, let yourself enter into this story. Enter into this journey. Let the story in the spirit wreck you in the most beautiful way. Because you have a God who loves you who died on the cross because of that love for you, who defeated death and rose from the grave because of that love for you. Personally, collectively, you have a king 
whose unpopular way of life will one day be the norm in the kingdom, where love and peace will determine the culture and the climate, where the powers that will be will one day cease. A king who had everything to do with loving God and loving your neighbor and loving your enemies, no matter who it was, no matter what the cost was for you. And if you doubted him, you could look at the wounds and saw that he meant it. And it's that king who invites us today to enter into the story of resurrection. And so today, I want us to enter into the story one more time. This is verse, this is chapter 32. Let's imagine ourselves just outside Jerusalem. We are with Jesus and his band of disciples early on a Sunday morning. Jesus has walked away uh, many a mile since he taught us that day on the hillside in Galilee. He has told many a parable, answered many a question, and asked even more. Earlier this morning, he did something really strange. He sent two of our number into town on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks Jerusalem from the east. He said they would find a donkey's colt tied to a tree. The two disciples should untie it and bring it to him. And if anyone asks about it, they should simply say, the master needs it. That was exactly what happened. And they brought Jesus the colt. The colt, of course, didn't have a saddle. And so we took some of our coats and we put them on the donkey. And then we lifted Jesus up upon it. And we started down the road that led to Jerusalem. So now we walk with him. At first, it's quiet with only the sound of the donkey's hooves clomping on the road. The wind blows through the olive trees. and We don't have any idea what he has planned. And then we hear something up ahead. What is it? A crowd is gathering. Children are shouting. Palm branches are waving. People are taking their coats and spreading them on the dusty road to make a lavish, multicolored carpet, as if Jesus were a king being welcomed to the capital. More and more people join our parade as we descend the hill. Eventually, we feel our confusion giving way to excitement, and we shout and dance and praise God together as we descend the road that leads to Jerusalem. Our voices echo across the valley. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, we shout. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heavens. Some Pharisees who have been part of the crowd are getting uncomfortable. They rush up to Jesus and sternly warn him that this is dangerous, that he should order us all to be quiet. They worried that proclaiming Jesus as king will be seen as a revolutionary act. That kind that might bring the Roman soldiers riding in on their horses, swords and spears in hand to slaughter us all in the name of law and order. But Jesus refuses to silence us. If they are silent, the rocks will start shouting, he says. And so our parade continues. We shout louder than ever. After our long journey over these last three years, it feels as if things are finally reaching their climax. We round a bend and there is Jerusalem spread before us in all her beauty, the temple glistening in the sun. A reverent silence descends upon our parade. It's a sight that has choked up many a pilgrim. But Jesus doesn't get choked up. He begins to weep. The crowd clusters around him and they begin to speak uh, as he begins to speak to Jerusalem. If only you knew on this day of all days the things that led to peace, he says through his tears. But you can't see. A time will come when your enemies will surround you and you will be crushed and this whole city leveled. All because you didn't recognize the meaning of this moment of God's visitation. What a shock. 
from a shouting, celebrating crowd to the sound of Jesus weeping, from the feeling that we were just about to finally win to a prediction of massive military defeat, from joyful laughter to tears. As we continue descending the road towards Jerusalem, we also descend into a quiet of our own thoughts. We begin whispering among ourselves about what's happening. And someone reminds us of the words from the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Sing aloud, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king will come to you. He is righteous and victorious. He is humble and riding on a colt, the offspring of a donkey. And a shiver of recognition runs through us all. What comes next, one of us asks. What did the prophet Zechariah say after that? Someone else has the passage memorized. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. The bow used in battle will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. His rule will stretch from the sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. And suddenly we feel the full drum of this moment. We recall another parade that frequently occurs on the other side of Jerusalem. Whenever Herod rides into the city in full procession from his headquarters in Caesarea Philippi, he enters not on a young donkey, but on a mighty war horse. He comes in the name of Caesar, not in the name of the Lord. He isn't surrounded by a ragtag crowd holding palm branches and waving their coats, but he's surrounded by chariots accompanied by uniformed soldiers with their swords and spears and bows held high. His military procession is a show of force intended to inspire fear and compliance, not hope or joy. And so the meaning of this day begins to become clear to us. Caesar's kingdom, the empire of Rome, rules by fear with threats of violence, demanding submission. God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, rules by faith with a promise of peace, inspiring joy. Jesus' tears are telling us something, that he knows that our leaders aren't going to listen to him. They're going to respond to Caesar's violence with violence of their own. And that's why Jesus just made that dire prediction. Our minds are reeling with this realization as Jesus leads our little parade into Jerusalem and straight to the temple. There he causes a big scene. He drives out the merchants who sell animals for sacrifice. He drives out those who exchange foreign currency for temple currency. Again, we know that there is great meaning in his actions. He's again challenging assumptions about the necessity of sacrifice and about the need for opulent temples and all they represent. This time he links together quotes from two of our greatest prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah. My house will be a house of prayer for all peoples, Isaiah said, but you have turned it into a hideout for crooks, Jeremiah said. It has been quite a day. A Sunday we'll never forget. The beginning of a week we'll never forget. What a wild mix of emotions. What a collective of drama and moments. As we fall asleep, we, we ponder this. To be alive is to learn what makes for peace. It's not more weapons, more threats, or more fears. It's more faith, more freedom, more hope, more love, more joy. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to invite the band up. Join me in prayer, God, in the next few moments. Speak to our hearts. Question our hearts. What do we 
What do we think of Jesus today? What crowd are we in? What story do we believe? What, what power have we put our faith in? Challenge us, critique us, convict us, comfort us. And if need to, confuse us. Cause chaos that, that, that eats at us, that, that makes us want to, to strive, to, that gives us drive to, to follow you, to know more of you. As we enter into this story, as we enter into this, this holy week, it begins today. Speak to us in the silence. Name I pray. Amen. In our scripture readings today, um, and a chapter from our book, uh, we make the road by walking. We see over and over um, how God didn't intend us to um, resolve hatred with hate or anger with anger, um, violence with violence. Um, we hear over and over about the king who's bringing peace. And um, Jesus weeping because we missed out, because we refused to see. And, and with that, we caused uh, suffering for so many. Um, if we can see, if we understand that it's through peace that we can really begin to live. We can begin to understand the true meaning of his sacrifice. Um, as Jeff just said, um, Brian McLaren said, it's not more weapons, more threats, more fear that makes for peace. It's more faith, more freedom, more hope, more love, more joy. Um, blessed is one who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, when I was reading over this this, this weekend, and um, as, as Braden said, um, when you come back from Guatemala, I think many different things always make you think of those different things. But the journey of the disciples um, reminded me of our, our journey on our trip when we arrived in Guatemala. And we were all really very excited about the things that were happening, but also unsure. And things changed really quickly from excitement to getting on a chicken bus and driving really late to the night and being sick. And all the different things that happened um, to, to just insecurity and, and different things. Um, we didn't know where we were going. It was kind of challenging. Um, but with us was this man who's pretty amazing. And Jody talked about him last week, um, Andres. And he is just incredible. And, and through all of these different things, um, he was steady. Um, he was calm and quiet and sure and um, prayerful. And he knew the importance of trusting God in everything that he does. And while we gave into our emotions of our circumstances so often, whatever they were, um, whether it was joy or or insecurity or tears, um, he just wore them. He embodied them. While he worked and shared and was generous and kind and caring, his face bore the pain of his people. He served and, and he, and he did it with his whole heart, his whole body. Um, while our entire group felt the pain of our struggles and, and cried with him um, and tears were there knowing um, that things weren't the way we wanted them to be, um, sometimes anger. Um, but with him, it was different. His tears, even when he had them, were with a knowing heart. He knew God's heart and he knew that God would provide and God did so many times. His faith provided him with a freedom beyond anything that I have ever known or experienced. He has experienced the greatest of atrocities and the most painful of tragedies at the hands of other human beings. And instead of turning to hate and revenge, 
He chooses to have hope and love and joy in knowing that the Lord of Lords will provide all that he says he will provide. While we were there, we were part of what I know was a miracle um, and an answer to prayer because Andres said, come and pray and my God will answer. And he did. He could have chosen anger at the situation, but really he couldn't because he knew God's heart. He knows the abundant love of God and the faithfulness of the Father, and he chooses to live that each day. And because he knows that, and he knows it's God's heart, um, he knows he has to share that with others. But back home, it's a little bit harder. Um, People want to quiet you down if you cheer too loudly for God or if you... You know, get too involved. We're just going to pray about this. Um, They want to blame people for things that hurt, and they want to hurt others as well. But today, Palm Sunday, is our reminder to be present, to remember who Jesus is and what he has called us to be. The hope he brings is for each of us. The choice is for each of us to believe, to trust, to love, and to use all that he gives us to bring that same hope to everyone that we know. Please listen to this song. And we'll do our giving moment. King has a 
sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. We sing hallelujah. The Lamb has overcome. We sing hallelujah. We sing We will pray and take up our offering. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this church. And we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son and the gift of freedom to experience all that is you. And to share that with others through the many gifts that you've given us. We thank you for this community who loves you and wants to serve you. And we pray you will bless the efforts of every person here. Help us to trust you and be willing to step up and step out to serve more. Father, bless our offering. May we give freely and confidently knowing that you will multiply our efforts and use our giving to bless this church and our community in amazing ways. We love you and we thank you. Be with us as we go out this week. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is standing in front of the temple in Jerusalem, this massive, gleaming brick and stone and gold house of God. And he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. The people listening to him say, how are you ever going to do that? It took 46 years to build this temple. But he wasn't talking about that temple. He's talking about himself. He essentially says, I'm going to be killed. And that's where this is headed. Because you don't confront corrupt systems of power without paying for it. Sometimes with your own blood. And so he's headed to his execution. If you had witnessed this divine life extinguished on a cross, how would you not be overwhelmed with despair? Is the world ultimately a cold, hard, dead place? Does death have the last word? Is it truly, honestly, actually dark? And so whatever light we do see, whatever good we do stumble upon, are those just blips on the radar, momentary interruptions in an otherwise meaningless existence? Because if that's the case, then despair is the only reasonable response. It's easy to be cynical. 
But Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. He says that his execution would not be the end. He's talking about something new and unexpected happening after his death. He's talking about resurrection. Resurrection announces that God has not given up on the world because this world matters. This world that we call home. Dirt and blood and sweat and skin and light and water. This world that God is redeeming and restoring and renewing. Greed and violence and abuse, they are not right and they cannot last because they belong to death and death does not belong. Resurrection says that what we do with our lives matters in this body, the one that we inhabit right now. So every act of compassion matters. Every work of art that celebrates the good and the true matters. Every fair and honest act of business and trade, every kind word they all belong and they will all go on in God's good world. Nothing will be forgotten. Nothing will be wasted. It all has its place. Everybody believes something. Everybody believes somebody. Jesus invites us to trust resurrection. That every glimmer of good, every hint of hope, every impulse that elevates the soul is a sign, a taste, a glimpse of how things actually are and how things ultimately will be. Resurrection affirms this life and the next as a seamless reality, embraced, graced, and saved by God. There is an unexpected, mysterious presence who meets each of us in our lowest moments when we have no strength, when we have nothing left and we can't go on. We hear the voice that speaks those words, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. Do you believe this? That's the question Jesus asked then, and that's the question he asked now. Jesus' friends arrive at his tomb, and they're told, He isn't here. Well, you didn't see that coming, did you? He isn't here, and there's nothing left to fear, and nothing can ever be the same again. We are living in a world in the midst of rescue with endless unexpected possibilities. They will take my life and I will die, Jesus says, but that will not be the end. And when you find yourself assuming that it's over, that it's lost, gone, broken, and it could never be put back together again, when it's been destroyed and you swear that it could never be rebuilt, hold on a minute because in that moment things will in fact have just begun. So we want to invite you back next week to a resurrection story. It's going to be a little bit different than it's been in the past. There's not going to be a big event afterwards. Um, we're going to be some things before. We're going to have a, a photo booth set for you and your family. You want to take family photos. You come in, there'll be a, a, a nice gift for you in the, in the coffee bar as well. Um, the kids will have plenty of activities during the service. Um, but it's a little bit different, but still the same great story. So I invite you and your friends to come back here. Remember, sit closer, park further. Um, and let's, let's have a great time. Okay, guys, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next week.